Um, as you can see from the video, uh, we're starting a brand new series. This is our summer series. We are going to be um, the entire summer, uh, summer in Ephesus and uh, a couple of different books, but primarily the book of Ephesians. There's this New Testament writer, his name is Paul. He went up and he set up a bunch of churches and then he wrote letters to them, sometimes correcting them, sometimes guiding them, sometimes encouraging them. Um, and one of those letters is to this church that's in Ephesus. And uh, it is an incredibly influential city within the early church. And we're entitling this, this um, series called Living Out Loud for this reason. <clears throat> Most of the time when we think about living a Christian life and sort of the practical nature of what that looks like, very often as Christians, we go to a certain book in the New Testament, and it's the book of James, right? Very practical, lots of, of good, solid types of things about living a Christian life. And if you read through the book of Ephesians, James has nothing on Ephesians. There is so much in there about living, you know, faithfully to Jesus in there. Between those two books, you're pretty well covered, okay? And so I want to spend some time thinking about this idea of living our faith out loud, not in an obnoxious sort of way. That's not what I'm, what I'm saying, but what does it mean to actually live a Christian life um, in your context, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and that kind of a thing? So, uh, very pragmatic um, in Ephesians, and we're going to talk about that. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front that even though we're going to spend the entire summer in Ephesians, there's just no way we're going to cover everything. Otherwise, we'll be here next year, still in the book of Ephesians, and I'm not sure you want to be covering Ephesians at Christmas time. I'm just saying, right? So, um, we're going to hit the highlights, and there are some theological ideas that are in the book of Ephesians that are better suited for classroom and discussion than they are for sermons. And uh, we'll look at maybe doing something like that um, if people are interested in talking about those. So the idea is to try to put, uh, pick up um, in each chapter some of those things that are, are most, relevant, most relevant to us. And so this is a letter, the book of Ephesians, that Paul wrote to this church that he actually founded. Um, and, but we're also going to, like I said, step into some other books, Acts and First and Second Timothy. And I have to admit, I'm in kind of the prep for this, I'm kind of astounded at the number of early Christian leaders who spent time in Ephesus. It's, it's that big of a deal. Um, very influential leaders and uh, ones that you have heard of. But first, in order to have this all make sense, I need to put it in some context. And I think it's important for us to understand the location. And so let me um, just, oops, let me start right there. So you, hopefully you've seen this before, um, but this is a, a map of the Mediterranean world at about the time of Jesus and shortly thereafter. And I've circled the city of Ephesus for you. It's in the modern-day country of Turkey, um, but the uh, Romans called it Asia at the time. And it's on that western edge, right on, on the sea. It was a major port city. It has a long history because of its location. In fact, the region was inhabited, started in 6000 B.C., now, to put some, some reference points for you, the pyramids in Egypt were built around 2500 B.C. So we're talking about a long history of people populating this particular area. 
But more important to our study is that the Greeks actually colonized and built the city of Ephesus right around 1000 B.C., Okay, so it's still pretty old, right? I think it's kind of funny. Sometimes we go to places in the United States, and it was like built in 1730, and, you know, Europeans and, and people in the Middle East are like, <clears throat> okay, <laughs> you know, it's, we're going to let you have that one, but, you know, 1,000 years old, 3,000 years old, um, Ephesus, as far as it goes with the Greeks. Now, what's interesting here is that uh, as time moves on, uh, it changes hands many times, and Finally, the Romans conquered the entire region in about 129 B.C. So we're talking about this long sort of military history, and all the while, it's almost always the capital of the region, almost always. Uh, There's a couple of other smaller cities um, where it kind of traded influence back and forth, but it seems to be that Ephesus always kind of, everything kind of came back to that particular city. And so for the Romans, it was a regional capital. Um, It was, like I said, a port city. It is no longer a port city, believe it or not. It's many miles from the ocean because the river that it was near filled in the land with silt. And so when you go and travel there today, you'll notice that there's like places where the docks might have been at one point, but it's, it's not like that anymore because of that. It sat on um, this port, Uh, This port sat on the major east-west trade route for Rome. And so, as you can well imagine, it's it's great to have a fortified place about halfway between Rome and Italy and points um, to the east, uh, you know, like Palestine and other places that Rome had some influence. So it it oversaw that that portion uh, of the trade route. At its height, the population of Ephesus was about 100,000 people. Um, In some cases, um, the uh, uh, estimates have been like 150,000 or more, and at other times, lower lower was about 50,000. By the time of the Crusades, it was just a village, which I find really interesting. Um, So it had waned in its influence over over a long period of time. But still, 100,000 people is a lot of people. It was big, it was strategic, it was influential, obviously a perfect place for a church, don't you think? So needless to say, when Paul arrives on the scene, um, it becomes uh, a great place for him to, uh, to plant a church. Now, there are two very significant features that we must talk about because they play a central lo- role in the story that we're about to hear. The first one is that it boasted a large amphitheater, and that's a picture of it, and I, I included this one so that you could kind of see people to scale. It seated uh, 25,000 people. That's a big theater. I don't care who you are. That's a big theater, especially in that ancient, sat on the side of a hill, and obviously could fit a lot of people. It was a, a, a major feature of the city. In fact, it sat on the major thoroughfare through the city. And so it wasn't far from the main common area called the Agora, uh, where you would have most of your commerce and most of your um, daily interactions. So it was very close to that. The second thing that it was known for was the Temple of Artemis. 
Right outside the, the city of Ephesus was this massive temple. It was enormous. In fact, the temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right alongside of the pyramids of Giza and the hanging gardens of Babylon, things that you had heard before. The temple of Artemis was just that big. It was built about 550 B.C. by the Greeks, and uh, even in, in that time frame, though the Greeks were great builders, uh, it was huge. In fact, a lot of the times we talk about the Parthenon in, in, uh, in Athens, and uh, this was almost more than double the size of the Parthenon. Like I said, it was just a massive, massive structure dedicated to the goddess Artemis. In, in Roman uh, language, it was called Diana. And what's interesting is Artemis is the goddess of the hunt. It's uh, the goddess of fertility. And to a lesser extent, it was the goddess of women in general, which plays a very significant role in our discussion uh, later on uh, in the series when we get and we start talking about First and Second Timothy. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, a little bit. So you've got to keep these things in mind, the theater specifically and the Temple of Artemis, because it plays so prominently in, in the background of this story. So the New Testament writer Paul, like I said, was a missionary, and he traveled, <clears throat> he started church, churches throughout the Greco-Roman world all around the Mediterranean. And as he did that, <clears throat> Um, we've divided, scholars have divided up those journeys in, into three major ones called the three missionary journeys of Paul. And um, he, we first encounter uh, his arrival in Ephesus in his second missionary journey. And I want to pick up this story in Acts chapter 18 so you can see it. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Um, here it is. Acts chapter 18, verses 19 through 21. When they reached Ephesus, he, meaning Paul, left Priscilla and Aquila there. But first he himself went into the synagogue and had a discussion with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Now, this is uh, an important thing because obviously he goes and he begins to follow his pattern where he goes into the synagogue and he has discussions with the local religious leaders, but he does something very important. He leaves behind two influential people, Priscilla and Aquila, this, this husband and wife, tent makers, that's what they did, that was their trade with Paul. They often traveled with him, but they happen to be followers of Jesus um, too. And so... There's a couple things that I want you to, to notice. First of all, whenever a New Testament writer, specifically Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, talks about these two, he always puts Priscilla's name first. This is significant because in ancient writing, you always put the male first, not so here. And largely, it's because they think that between the two of them, Priscilla was the better preacher. Seriously. And so when we see Priscilla first, that's the writer signaling something to us. So keep that in mind. By the way, if you ever want to do a fascinating character study, look up all the passages related to Priscilla and Aquila. These are heavyweights of the early church. The fact that Paul leaves them there in Ephesus is a big deal because he knows that they're going to um, get that, that little seedling church up and running and it's going to be strong. Okay? And, and that's the way it worked out, by the way. So we know that from history. 
So this will also be very important, Priscilla and Aquila, when we get into Ephesians chapter 5, which is the one about husbands and wives and submission and all of that kind of stuff that constantly gets taken out of context. But I will save that for another day. That's what we call a hook. So hopefully you've got to come back for Ephesians chapter 5 which is really a whole lot of fun because I often preach that at weddings and the bride burns me with her eyes. It's so much fun. And then by the end, she loves me, so it's okay. So anyway, now Paul returns back to Ephesus during his third tour. Let me pick this up in Acts chapter 19. While Apollos, this is another Christian, was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. Well, yeah, he found some, some disciples of, of another Christian, but he also had left some himself. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke out boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. When some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way, that's what they called early Christianity, the way, before the congregation, he left them taking the disciples with him and argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So for three months, he was in the synagogue doing the thing that Paul does, and when that didn't you know, bear the kind of fruit that he'd hoped for, he left them, and for two years, he poured into these disciples in another location, and very, very interesting. And here we get all upset when things don't go well after we do four spiritual laws in the sinner's prayer, right? You know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer than that. It's about building the relationships that we have <clears throat> with people and investing time and energy into them. Now, Luke, actually, uh, who's the author of Acts, um, and by the way, he was often a companion of Paul, too, a traveling companion of Paul. He records several events that occur in, in Ephesus. And I would encourage you just to read through it, Acts chapter 18 and 19, very interesting. Um, but there's one that's particularly dramatic that I want to talk about today. Now, all flourishing cities, at least in my experience, um, have some kind of unique cottage industry that supports the local economy. And what I mean by cottage industry means it's very specific to that area. Um, you might be aware of, of some of these. So um, Lisa and I, our first home <clears throat> was in a little town called Grain Haven, Michigan. So if this is Michigan, it was right about here, okay? It was right on the shore of Lake Michigan, and it has in my opinion, the best beach in Michigan, but I'm not biased. And just because I am biased doesn't mean I'm wrong. So it's a great beach. And that little town had several places to eat um, that were very unique to the area. And you might find some of these similar kind of places in other beach towns up and down the lakeshore, but there was this concentration in this particular town, and I think it's just the way it was set up. So if you ever find yourself in Grand Haven, Michigan, I highly recommend Butch's Beach Burritos and ice cream from the Dairy Tree. You will not be disappointed, straight up. And if you're ever there, let me know. I can tell you about some other places that are really good too. 
you've been to some places like that. There are certain areas that have certain things that they're known for. So, like, if you wanted to go surfing, you'd probably go to Malibu, California, maybe a couple places in Hawaii, although I don't know now with all the lava flow, I don't think you can surf those, so I'm not so sure. Um, music, you go to Nashville, Tennessee. Um, if you want a specific kind of banking, you go to Switzerland, right, or Grand Cayman. Um, that's the one I would choose, but, you know, hey, that's just me. Uh, movies, you go to Hollywood. So there's certain areas that are just known for certain uh, types of either skills or trades or, or these cottage industries that support the local economy. But you get the idea, right? You can probably think of your own. In Ephesus, you had a very significant cottage industry among silversmiths. This is, this is important especially to our story. In the ancient world, commerce, business, was often intertwined with religion. Isn't that interesting? Brings to mind a certain Jewish carpenter, rabbi, who kind of got upset and kicked over some tables and drove out livestock in the temple courts, right? It's been like that for thousands and thousands of years. Very common. And apparently, Paul's work and his um, preaching of the way of following Jesus disrupted some of the local commerce. And we want to pick up the story in Acts chapter 19 again because this gets really, really interesting. So, um, this is a picture of one of the idols of, of Artemis. Uh, I don't know. I thought she'd be more attractive than that, but that's just me. Um, most of the time, uh, these little um, idols were made of terracotta. But there were um, certain times, there was one particular month of the year, it was supposedly the birth of the goddess Artemis, um, where there would be pilgrimages and big festivals, and the silversmiths would kind of have a boom because it wasn't made out of terracotta. It was a highly prized to have one made out of silver. So here we pick up the story. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way, concerning Christianity. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines or little idols of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. So there's this collection of silversmiths located in Ephesus. And there we go. <clears throat> These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. Well, that's a pretty big claim, if you think about it. So you have this big festival, and apparently it wasn't as well attended because of the work of Paul. And you need to understand that the cult of Artemis was quite influential because they found smaller worship sites 
of Artemis throughout Asia in no less than 30 cities. That's a large number in that particular um, area, um, second only to probably the, the emperor worship, uh, the Roman emperor, uh, what we call the imperial cult, at least in, 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 uh, in Asia. So Paul was hitting them in the pocketbook, and nothing gets people more upset when you do that, right? That uh, makes, makes a lot of sense. And the other thing that I want you to notice here, um, he makes this comment, Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, please understand, Paul is just echoing a very common Jewish sentiment. He is quoting other prophets and poets from his own religion. But what's interesting is that early Christians, do you know what they were called? Early Christians were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't worship idols. Now, we know that one of the Ten Commandments is that you will make no graven images of me, right? And so Jews and, and early Christians were just following that tradition because nobody really knew what God looked like, but that's what everyone else looked at and said, well, you must be an atheist because you don't actually have an idol. Funny how things work out, right? <laughs> Very interesting. But gods made with hands are not gods. Fascinating. Fortunately, um, let's see, uh, when they heard this, uh, they were, they were in, enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and people rushed together to where? The theater. Remember that great big massive structure? Dragging with them Gaius and... Right? <laughs> Macedonians who were with Paul's traveling companions. These were other Christians that were there. So you have this large group of silversmiths who are gathering together. And later on, it even says that everyone showed up. They didn't even know why they were there. There was some confusion as, what, what, are, we, what are we all doing here? Everyone's just counting, kind of shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and have you ever been there? It's like the one person who's standing on the street and just doing this. And pretty soon there's a crowd of people kind of looking, trying to see what he's doing or she's doing, as the case may be. That's kind of what was going on here. But fortunately, um, disaster was averted. And here's what we, where we see it. But when the town clerk, was, who is the highest elected official in Ephesus, had quieted the crowd, he said, citizens of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges there against one another. Now, Ephesus, because it was a kind of a, a, a Roman town, actually had a, a lot of, um, I guess I would call it leeway. But one thing that Rome did not tolerate was riots. And there is some history to suggest that Ephesus got into some trouble with Rome about five to ten years earlier than that. And here's the town clerk. Here's the local sheriff, the local elected official saying, don't do this, remember what happened last time. And got the quiet, you know, oh yeah, that's probably a bad idea. We don't want the Romans coming back and doing what Rome, Rome does. And so he... He quieted the crowd, and this disaster, this, this riot 
was averted because of his, his intelligence. Now, it's against this backdrop that we're going to read through Paul's encouraging letter to the Ephesian church. But the thing that I want to, to pause and, and talk about, and first of all, there's a big upshot here, is this church grew. And it grew both in power, and it grew in influence, and it, uh, it produced some amazing, amazing people in the early church. And um, that's something for us to think about. So if we kind of put this into perspective a little bit, Paul probably went to Ephesus uh, right around 55 BC, uh, um, uh, AD, and then um, he came back um, maybe a year or two later and spent some time there. When he left, he wrote the book of 1 Timothy in about 58 AD, the book of 2 Timothy in 61 AD, and the book of Ephesians in 62 AD. And then something happened in 66. In 66 was the beginning of the Jewish war when Rome went to war with the Jews. I remember when I was a kid, there was this movie called Masada. Do you remember that? Maybe you might remember it. It was this kind of Jewish stronghold that the Romans went after and there was a big movie about it. That was during the Jewish war, 66 AD. And about that time, a man named John moved from Jerusalem to Ephesus. And John is the famous John of Peter, James, and John. John the Apostle. And there's some suggestion that he was the youngest of all of the disciples, maybe as young as 12 or 13 years old when he started to follow Jesus, which would account for his old age. And so in 66, he moved to Ephesus. And there, over a period of time, he and his disciples um, wrote and compiled some major works. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and most importantly, the Revelation of John. And what's so fascinating is in Revelation chapter 2, it begins a, a series of, of words that God spoke to the seven churches in Asia. And the very first one was Ephesus, and they are commended for their faithfulness. That was written about 95 A.D. By 110 A.D., Another um, influential person, a man named Ignatius of Antioch, one of the early church fathers, was um, arrested and sentenced um, for martyrdom in Rome. And on his travels from Antioch, which is in the Middle East, all the way to Rome where he would uh, face wild animals um, by tradition, he stopped in Ephesus and had a conversation with the leaders there. And then he wrote them a letter. And in that letter, he commends them for their faithfulness and their influence in a world that was persecuting Christians over and over again. Ignatius was a disciple of John. The Ephesian church produced so many quality leaders and was so faithful to Jesus over a long period of time. It's truly astonishing. But here's the thing to remember. We started with Artemis, and we ended with Jesus. And what's interesting to me is that that happened in about 50 years, just 50 years. 
And so I think that the message for us today is that when the environment seems a little bit hostile, when the local landscape is dominated by opposition, when there's conflict all around us, the Ephesian church kind of looks at us and goes, eh, you'll be okay. The Ephesian church says to us, hang on. Hang on because this isn't the end. There's still more and you can still be faithful in all of these things and be commended for it. Keep going. God is at work. I think that's the message that we want to carry with us, not only through this entire series, but how about we just take that into Monday with us?